We'll be looking at Acts chapter 13, so please open your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatever you're using to Acts chapter 13. One of my interests, one of my hobbies, which my wife did not understand, is collecting and looking at ancient letters, letters that were written perhaps at the time of our Lord between merchants and their wives as they traveled and between different individuals, which had nothing to do with the Bible, which perhaps uh, show um, the culture, the way people lived back in those days. And uh, I recently came across a letter written to the Apostle Paul, which is not in the Bible, from a mission society to which he had to which he did had applied. Perhaps you're not aware that the Apostle Paul applied to be a member of a mission society. And I'd like to read to you some experts from that letter as we consider Acts chapter 13, where Paul becomes the center of Luke's story of the early church, where the Holy Spirit is spreading the gospel throughout the world. So here's this letter to Paul, written to the Reverend Saul Paul, independent missionary in Corinth and Greece. Dear Mr. Paul, we recently received an application from you for service under our board. It is our policy to be as frank and as open-minded as possible with all our applicants. We've made an exhaustive survey of your case. To be clear, we are surprised that you've been able to pass as a real missionary. We are told that you were afflicted with a severe eye problems. That is certainly to be a real handicap to effective ministry. Our board requires 20-20 vision. At Antioch, we learned that you dared to oppose Dr. Simon Peter, an esteemed denominational secretary. You actually rebuked him openly and publicly. You stirred up so much trouble in Antioch that a special board meeting had to be convened in Jerusalem. We cannot condone such actions. Is it true that you have the jail record? Certain brethren have told us that you did two years' time in Caesarea and that you were imprisoned at Rome. Surely not. You made such trouble for businessmen in Ephesus that they referred to you as the man who turned the world upside down. Sensationalism in missions is uncalled for. We also deplore the over-the-wall-in-basket episode in Damascus. In one of your letters, you refer to yourself as Paul the Aged. Our mission policies do not allow for old recipients. We understand that you were given to fantasies and desired the dreams. At Troas, you saw a man of Macedonia. And another time, you were caught up into the third heaven and even claimed that the Lord stood by you. You have caused trouble wherever you go. You opposed the honorable woman at Berea and the leaders of your own nationality in Jerusalem. If you can't get along with your own people, how can you serve foreigners? We learned that you were a stake handler. You picked up a stake that, that bit you and did not suffer harm. We know that you had a bitter quarrel with fellow missionary Barnabas. You've written letters to churches and you accused a church member of living with his father's wife and caused the whole church to feel badly and the poor person was expelled. I don't think I'll read the rest. That's Paul. Acts, the first missionary journey. Remind you that the very big idea in the book of Acts as we've been studying is that it tells us the story of King Jesus it shows God as king, as he establishes kingdom. And we see the coming of the Holy Spirit. He enables and he insists Jesus, assists Jesus' followers 
followers to embrace the Father's mandate, which is to testify to Jews and non-Jews from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth about Jesus' salvation through his death and resurrection. Last night at 10 o'clock, I finally wrote my big idea. I told some of the gentlemen yesterday morning that I was struggling with that. The big idea of today's passage, I think, is that this is next step in God's plan for missions. This is the next step. So far, the Holy Spirit has been working in Jerusalem and Judea among the Jewish people, mostly. Now the Holy Spirit moves the large, multi-ethnic church in Antioch to send out the first missionaries to the Roman Empire. And our outline is simple. We're going to see, first of all, leadership. And we're going to see missions. And we're going to see opposition and conversion and disappointment. And we're going to draw some applications. A brief application. We are now in the second part of the book of Acts. This is part two. We're starting by part two. And we move from Jerusalem to Antioch as center the center of Luke's emphasis. And we're leading, leaving Peter as the leader of the first church to Paul. Emphasis changes. And we're, the, the emphasis is changing from Jewish evangelism to non-Jewish Gentile evangelism and from Palestine to the Mediterranean world. Let's look at leadership. We're going to read verse 1 of Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I'm impressed by the leadership here. Let's think of this church of Antioch. Let's think about these leaders. First of all, there was a plurality of, lead, plurality of leaders, not one senior guy that ran the whole show. Biblical. The church is to be led by elders, by a group of leaders. And you can have an elder who's a full-time working in the church, but he's part of a group of leaders. And the plurality of leaders here gives strength to this local church. Secondly, as we read this passage, it's clear that there were leaders who prioritized prayer and intercession. When I first became an elder in the church in Kaplan-Medlin, where I served for 45 years, um, I was impressed by the fact that every elders' meeting, twice a, a month, we spent one hour with the list of the members of the church, and we each prayed for one page so that over a period of three months, the elders played for every family in the church. At that time, there were over 500 people in that church, several couple hundred families, and um, uh, intercession. And, and sometimes, at first, I thought to myself, this is a waste of time. We've got some important things to talk about. Why are we wasting time praying? And I soon, soon, soon learned that the Lord worked as the elders prayed. These elders prayed. It was important to them. Thirdly, these elders listened to the Lord's teaching, the Lord's leading. They, they, they were listening to what the Lord was saying. They were seeking his face. Lots of movements and the way churches should be run today. Uh, about every five years, a new book comes out, and I'm in book publishing, and we read them, and 
but once every 30 years we print, we find one that's worth translating, we translate into French, the other ones not so much. Um, these people are going to the Lord for leading. These are leaders whose vision extended beyond their local needs. That's wonderful. They didn't have, what do you call those things that uh, horses wear? So, I, uh, binder, blinders, yeah. Um, they saw the need of the whole world, not their local church. And they're leaders who knew and knew how to teach God's word. Now, we, a group of leaders needs different types of people. Uh, you need someone who knows how to run a meeting. Nothing worse than a group of leaders that get together and they're all over the place and there's no organization in the meeting and nobody knows where they're going. Having someone who can run a meeting is an important thing. But more than anything, leaders who know how to teach the word of God. And there were prophets and there were teachers. Now, what's a prophet? We often think that prophets are people that foretell the future. And there was some of that going on. Um, but if you read the Old Testament, which uh, the Old Testament is full of prophets, the whole second part of the Old Testament is prophets. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that prophets are about 90% forthtelling and maybe 5 or 10% foretelling the future. If you read the minor prophets and the major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and you get into Malachi and Zechariah, those smaller prophets, you'll find that they're taking the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and especially the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, recently, uh, I've been really studying the book of Deuteronomy for my own culture, and it's interesting how that the prophets of the Old Testament took the truths, the teaching of God, God's standards for his people in Deuteronomy, and they look at the way people are living and ministering and, and acting around them in their time, and they make that comparison to the people, and they try to correct the way they are living. They're applying God's word, which has already been revealed by God, to the way people were living at that time. Forthtelling, practical Christian living. I believe that's what prophecy is. Teachers had a different type of ministry. They expounded the Old Testament and the traditions about the life and teachings of Jesus as handed down, handed down in the church. They didn't have the New Testament as we do, but there was an oral tradition, which is very, very clear. There are quotes from Jesus' ministry in the, in the New Testament. An emphasis on pedagogy, on systematic teaching, rather than on proclamation, and uh, a clear understanding of discernment, uh, of biblical truth. Are there prophets today? I certainly believe we need a prophetic ministry whereby we're applying God's words to people's lives. And perhaps you might differ somewhat, some of us, on that idea of prophets today. But I'd like to suggest to you a principle, which I think is helpful. It's called discernment. The New Testament is very clear that when someone teaches or someone says they're prophesying, that we have the responsibility to look at what they're saying, compare it to God's word, and decide if it's right or wrong. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, if someone predicted the future and it didn't come to pass, you know what they did? They stoned them. 
want to be a false prophet in the Old Testament. Okay. We might be helpful to stone some people today, I'm not sure. I'll give you an example. When every three or four years, someone decides that they know when Jesus is coming back, the date, the time, and they write a book. And some of them are well-known, and some of them are good men, and trying to figure out why they became such idiots when they were older, I don't know. Um, and yet we know the Bible, and we know that Jesus himself says that no man knows when I'm coming back. The Father knows. And who are these guys who decide that they know when Jesus said that they don't know? That's discernment. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if someone's telling you that they know when the Lord's coming back, don't go up on a hill and quit your job. We had a guy in Three Rivers. He was a pastor in a church about six or seven years ago in the city where I live, where he said the Lord's coming back at that date. And he went on television, the local television station, he said, I've taken on eight credit cards and I've filled them up. And I've taken my family on six cruises. We've been to Disneyland twice. I fixed my house up, but I'm not going to have to pay back because the Lord's coming back in three months. Well, the Lord didn't come back in three months. And he disappeared. I don't know where he is. He didn't pay his debts, I'll tell you that much. I mean, that, that was a disgrace. That brought shame on the Lord's name. Do you understand what I'm saying? We might, dif dif we might disagree a little bit on something, but let's not disagree on that. Our responsibility is to use our discernment when it comes to tongues and prophecy and miracles and all those things. Good common sense discernment. We read that these leaders were involved in worshiping, ministering to the Lord. I love that. Their service was yes to the people, but it was first of all to the Lord. If I'm going to do something in the Lord's work, I need to remember that first of all, I'm serving the Lord. Serving the people is important, but it's secondary. The word worshiping here is the word that gives us in English liturgy. It was used in the Old Testament to describe the work of the priests in the Septuagint, particularly in the, in the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament, which was made perhaps 200 years before the birth of our Lord. Uh, the work of the priests in the temple uh, was called liturgy. Um, it talks about worship and prayer, and they were fasting. Fasting is an urgent desire as we seek the Lord. Now, there was lots of work left to do in Antioch. It was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, probably 500,000 people or perhaps more. Um, and certainly the church in Antioch had, not, Antioch had not, it was a big church, but they had not evangelized the whole city. There was a lot to do there, but these leaders looked beyond their doors, beyond their city. They had a vision for the whole world. Interesting that it was a multi-ethnic group of leaders in a multi-ethnic church. Antioch was a melting pot. There was Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And Barnabas was the person who had went and had found and introduced Paul to the church. And he was a leader in the church. It's interesting as we read through this, these first 13 verses that at the beginning in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Barnabas is mentioned first. But by the end of chapter 13, we read Paul and his companions 
Barnabas becomes a companion. I like it when leaders can eclipse themselves in circumstances or with time when someone else becomes a more important leader than themselves. It takes a certain humility. It takes a certain spirituality. We have a person here called Simon, Simon called Niger, uh, almost certainly a man of color from Africa. Um, the word Niger means dark. Um, and um, there are those who believe that he was a person who carried Jesus' cross. Maybe that's just speculation. There's a man called Lucius, and he was from Cyrene, certainly a man of color again. Uh, uh, there are those who say that Lucius was Luke, who wrote the Gospel, uh, the, the Gospel Luke in the Book of Acts. Uh, I really don't think that's, that's credible. There's a man called Manamayen. He was a prince. He was raised in the home of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Okay, he was raised in that home. The word that is called friend here uh, probably should be translated adopted brother. It was used in both ways. Adopting somebody to be a companion for our son was a common occurrence in that culture. And uh, so he was a man who was raised in wealth, uh, in prestige. Interesting that the man who killed John the Baptist and whom Jesus, to whom Jesus refused to speak at his trial, his son became one of the leaders of the church in Antioch. <laughs> we can break the mold. We don't have to be like our parents. We learn good things from our parents, but we don't have to follow every sin that our parents committed. And there was Saul, an educated Jew from Tarsus. And we read um, when it was Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means the fourth. When, when Herod, the Grand, the Herod the Great died, the Romans were tired of the way the Herods ruled, and they divided the territory into four, and Herod Tetrarch became ruler of the fourth of the kingdom of his father. I put a chart up here. I don't know if you can see it. I hope it's big enough. The Herods was a big family. Uh, we'll find them all for the book of Acts. Okay? And it wasn't a great family. Uh, tel père, tel fils, we say in French, like father, like son. They were an awful bunch. Herod the Great was the one who killed the babies when Jesus was died because he's afraid that someone might take his place. His son, Herod Antipas, is Herod the Tetrarch. He's the one that killed John the Baptist. Going down to the left, Herod Agrippa I was the one who killed James. We saw that last week in chapter 12. And if you go down below that, you'll find Herod Agrippa II and Bernice and Drusilla, who are descendants who kept Paul in prison in Caesarea because they wanted to be bribed. A great family. So that gives you a, ch a chance of seeing who all these different Herods are. Secondly, we're going to look at mission. <clears throat> Reading verses 2 to 5. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. 
And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This laying on of hands, identification. In the Old Testament, when the priest would sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people, he would lay his hands on the head of the animal before killing it and would confess the sins of the people. And there was identification there. Um, more than transition of power, it's confirmation, unity, identification that's involved here. Notice here that these missionaries were sent by the local church. <clears throat> the advent, the creation, the coming of faith missions, mostly in the, 18th century, in the 19th century, was a wonderful thing. And faith missions have done great work and have helped the missionary movement throughout the world over the last few hundred years. I fear that today they have replaced the local church. Missions should be, first of all, the ministry of the local church. The local church sends out. And I believe in accountability to the local church. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, their workers regularly, you'll see as we go through the book of Acts, they come back to their sending church to report receive approval, um, for, for their ministry. They were accountable to the local church. I won't go into details, but I remember we had a young lady with her husband that were in South America, way up 13,000 feet, living in a mud hut with no floor, with no furniture and almost no furniture. And she was, after five years, she was breaking down. There's no question about it. She was from our church in Three Rivers. <clears throat> he was from a church in St. John, New Brunswick, where the pastor was one of my good friends. I studied with him. We got together, and we called the faith mission and said, this isn't going well. We have to do something. We're going to collect some money, and we're going to build them a house and buy them some furniture, and, and, and we're going to have them three months, take three months off and, uh, because she's going to burn out. She, she, she's just about burned out here. We were told to mind our own business. And we told them, we're the local churches they're from. It is our business. This is going to happen. If you're not happy, they'll change missions. How dare you? It happened. It happened. I just want to say that to say missions should be local church. That was what was going on here. They're led by the Holy Spirit. Wonderful thing. And they proclaim the word of God. And I want to suggest to you that the local church must reclaim its central place in world missions. Seleucia. They left Antioch. They went down to Seleucia, which is a, the port city of Antioch. It's 16 miles away on the mouth of the Orontes River. People traveled by, a lo by, by ship at that time. So they went down to the port city, city and they went to Salamis, which is in the northeast of, of uh, Cyprus. And then from, Cy from Salamis, they went, it's, the biggest, it's um, one of the biggest cities uh, there. And then they went to the southwest. I got a map, the next slide. 
the Paphos, which is in the um, Paphos, which is in the southwest, the two biggest cities on the island. Um, the mission outreach in the Book of Acts started with the large cities and spread out from there. I've been a missionary for 55 years, I guess it is, yes, working with the Brethren Assemblies of French Canada. If I look at the ministry of, the, of our French Brethren, who have, you know, I mean, 45 churches were founded in Quebec um, in the French world. Uh, that's wonderful. But I think if one mistake was made, is that we, we started churches in every little village of Quebec and neglected the cities. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find out that Paul went to the cities, founded strong churches, and from, from that, those cities, the outreach, outreach went to the areas around. That's the proper way of doing missions. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean. It's about 60 miles from Syria, where Paul was living in Antioch, and it was actually visible on a clear day uh, from Syria. It was that close. Perhaps you don't realize that Cy Cy Cyprus, uh, which is the third largest island in the Mediterranean, it's about 100 miles by 60 miles, is very important in Canadian history. In 1964, a civil war started in Cyprus. Um, it was mostly Greek, and there was a Turkish area, and the Turks sent soldiers in, and there a battle started. And Canada sent soldiers. It was called Operation Snow Goose. 25,000 Canadian soldiers served in Cyprus from 1964 through to 1979, I th 1989, I think, yes. That's important to me because my father was involved in that. Um, HMCS Bonaventure, which was Canada's last uh, aircraft carrier, it was my father's ship at that time. And uh, I remember when I was a young guy, I was about 17 years old, I wasn't living at home, but I was in relationship with my mother and father. It was before they moved to Vancouver, we were in Halifax. Um, they took all the planes off that aircraft carrier, and they put 56 trucks and tanks and other vehicles on that aircraft carrier, and 95 men from the Royal Second Regiment. I don't know if you know what the Royal Second Regiment is. They're called the Vandus. Vandusian Vandus. My grandfather was a French Canadian. I'm 25% pure Len. My grandfather was actually from Three Rivers. It's a pure coincidence. I returned there as a missionary. I served in the Vandus during World War I and was badly wounded there. Um, but they tell us that when the Vandus were attacking the Germans, the Germans retreated. That was a Canadian regiment that they were all afraid of. So, um, so they put all these ships, all these soldiers, and all these trucks and vehicles on this aircraft carrier. My dad was on it, and they took them to Cyprus. And my family was afraid. In our local church, we were afraid. Uh, Twelve Canadian soldiers were killed in the first uh, two years there in, that, in, that, uh, in that, that thing. So Cyprus is part of our Canadian history. It was probably the biggest United Nations uh, effort ever made. Here's a map that shows you what happened. And of course, these things always die when we need them. <laughs> there we go. Um, Paul's in Antioch. He went down to the port city in Seleucia. He went to Salamis and that part of, and evangelized there. And then he went to the other end of the island, Paphos, which is the capital. And from there, he went on up into Asia. 
change the battery, I guess. Opposition. If you want to serve the Lord, there's going to be opposition. Verses 6 to 11. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, 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 I guess, in English, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But, Paul, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Bar Jesus. Bar is the Hebrew, also I believe the Arab word for son. And Jesus means uh, savior, son of the savior. But they called him Elimus, which is a, certainly an Arab word, possibly used in Hebrew at that time, I'm not sure, which means magician. And he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Uh, when we look at Roman culture, it's interesting that these highly cultivated men, and Sergius, Sergius Paulus were told that he was very intelligent, highly intelligent men, but they were influenced by dumb occultism. Interesting that in our Quebec, where we have rejected religion, Christianity, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Our, our um, French culture, French Canadian culture now, is very occultish. You know, uh, um, Buddhism is more popular than Christianity. Um, um, on CBC uh, website, you won't find anything about Christianity, but you'll find horoscopes. Uh, that's where we are as a society. That's the way it was back then. So he used his influence to turn the proconsul from the gospel. Um, th there were probably, I'm told that there are 200,000 Jews in Cyprus. I'm not sure if that's, that sounds high to me, but that's what they tell us. And of course, Barnabas was from Cyprus. Um, and um, so this Roman emperor, this Roman um, proconsul, a proconsul was the governor of a part of the Roman Empire which was under the Senate. And um, uh, he wanted to know what was going on. And he knew about this Christianity that was causing division among the Jews. And he brought in uh, Paul and Sardavus to learn about it. And he was interested. Of course, he who was called son of salvation, Paul called him son of the devil. <laughs> Quite a contrast there. So Paul confronted him. It's interesting that he confronted the magician. He didn't confront, confront the demonic power. So always face opposition when we do the Lord's work. Let's not be surprised. Well, let's get scared. Let's not get discouraged. It's just what's going to happen. When we serve the Lord, we'll get opposition. Paul was 
very strong in his words with this person, but we're told that he was filled with the Spirit when he confronted him. So it wasn't a temper tantrum. It wasn't an error on his part. He was being led by the Lord. Um, I want to um, draw a practical lesson, lesson here. There's some Christians who like to run around confronting demons, strange demons, demons of headache and demons of this, that, and the other thing. Um, one of the worst things we can do is try to cast out a demon for someone who doesn't have a demon. We can destroy them psychologically, emotionally. Um, secondly, I don't believe in confronting demons. Our Lord did, but I'm not my Lord. Okay? I don't have that authority. And I'm confronting something that's a lot stronger than I am. I believe that we confront the person's sin that led to demonization. We help them to renounce that activity, to seek forgiveness, and to ask the Lord to deliver them. One of my first experiences in that was when I was 18 years old. I was a, after my first year of Bible school, I was serving with the Canadian Sunday School Mission in the western part of Newfoundland, a little bit north of Cornerbrook, if you know Newfoundland. We went from village to village in fishing boats, because there are no roads, and we did daily vacation Bible schools on fields filled with cows and cow patties, if you know what that is. Uh, we had to be very careful where we sat and walked. We had, we'd have 150 kids who didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, it was that, that pagan, that part of Newfoundland. Uh, they knew his name. Um, I was brought up on a naval base. And Navy people know how to curse and swear, but these kids could curse and swear. They really could. So could their parents. So here we were in a place called Cox's Cove. And behind this, this field, there was a, a cliff boat that high. And this lady, I'll call her a lady, who for, of whom everybody in the village was afraid, every morning for the first three or four days would come with an axe and walk up and down that field and tell us that they were going to kill us if we didn't talk, start talking about Jesus. And she would curse and swear and talk in some language nobody understood. I had trouble understanding Nufi as it was, but she had a different, a different language she was using. And everybody said she has a demon, we're afraid of her. They didn't know who Jesus was, but they knew about demon and demons. And she started threatening to come down on the, uh, from the um, cliff and to kill us and kill the kids. And, you know, I was 18, and the senior person I was working with was 20, and we were scared to death. We really were. Um, and um, finally we prayed. We got up our courage. We went to the foot of the cliff, cliff where she was up there, brandishing this big axe, and we said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you go home and don't come back. And I'm going to tell you something, I was scared. <laughs> I've never been so scared in my life. She left. She left. But we didn't confront the demon, we confronted her. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Um, I won't tell you more stories. I've had three or four experiences like that in my life. But just don't get involved in this demon chasing business. Opposition. Paul, Barnabas, were courageous in opposition. We need to be courageous. Fourthly, conversion. Oh, I did there. Then the proconsul believed. 
when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Verse 12. Sergius Paulus. Do you think the Bible's full of stories that aren't true, just made up? Here's some pictures. This is a monument which was set up for Sergius Paulus. We know that he was hailed from a family which rendered distinguished service to the empire in the first and second centuries, his whole family. Second inscription. Next slide, please. You can see another inscription which was found in Cyprus. And it reads, uh, Sergio Paolo, which is the Latin way of saying it, the son of the Sergio Paolo, which is here, uh, who is a servant. Here's another one in Rome, which tells us that the commissioners of the banks and the beds of the Tiber, by the authority of Tiberius Clodius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, that's the emperor Claudius, leader of the Senate, marked the boundaries of the Tiber floodplain by placing boundary stones on the bank from the Trigarium to the Pons Agrippi. So he was so distinguished that there's a, a monument in Rome about him. So we read that this man, you can believe the Bible, eh? There's evidence here that it's true. There's outside evidence, external evidence, which shows that this man existed. He's very important. Um, he saw the miracle and he was impressed, but we read he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In verse 7 we read he sought to hear the word of God. Contemporary literature tells us that his daughter, Sergio Paulus, was also a Christian and his grandson, Gaius Fronto, was a Christian and he was the first Roman senator from Pisidian Antioch. We'll see about that next week in the rest of chapter 13. We cannot overestimate the importance of the conversion of Sergius Paulus. Not only was he the chief man in Cyprus, he was from the area where Paul ministered in Antioch, Pisidia, which we're going to see next week, and where his family was, where Paul preached his first sermon in the book of Acts. We'll see that next week. He was also a highly considered noble in Rome. His children had an important impact on the gospel. The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Don't be shy about using God's word. Don't be embarrassed about God's word. He saw the miracle, he was impressed, but God's word was a conversion. Disappointment, just rapidly, we read that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John was an assistant, but he had been an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, of his crucifixion, of his life. So this word assist is used as a keeper of scrolls that looked after the manuscripts in the synagogues, but it's also more general. We can ask the question, why did John Mark abandon the work? Was he afraid because of the confrontation, the, the, the uh, opposition? Was he jealous because his uncle Barnabas had been replaced by Paul in importance? Was he afraid of health problems in Asia because Paul was going to Asia, which was known for malaria and other sicknesses? He was a disappointment. He was a failure. Uh, I've always tried to invest in young men, and uh, once in a while I've invested in someone over years and helped them to grow in Christian service, and they've blown their ministry and 
fallen into sin, and it's been a terrible, terrible disappointment. Exception, but it happens. That's what happened here. I'm thankful to say that the Lord did not give up on him. Later on, Paul in 2 Timothy tells us he is, once again, helpful. If you've blown it, it's not too late. It's not too late. Applications. <clears throat> Thomas Chalmers, a great Scottish evangelist, said, Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. The history of missions is full of great leaps forward that took place when people got together to pray. The Holy Spirit who leads and acts when we pray is key to the whole missionary enterprise. And secondly, missions and costly release. When God calls, we must release even those who we consider to be the most important and valued persons. That's how important missions is. I think it's Livingstone who said that God had only one son, and he was a missionary. The church in Antioch released their best and sent them on their way. Long-term missionaries are a rare breed today. If you talk to mission leaders, they'll tell you this. We've got lots of short-term missionaries. It's a great thing. We no longer have people who spend their life on the mission field, and that changes the life of that country and those churches, and that's a rare thing today. The older missionaries are retiring. They're not being replaced. And I'm going to ask you a question. My dad never forgave me when I became a missionary to Quebec. He wanted me to become a, a, an officer in the Navy. And I actually spent some time in officer training until the Lord kicked me out. And I finally obeyed him and came to Quebec as a missionary. Well, I knew, I knew that I was, well, that's what I was supposed to do. My mom never understood why you could be a missionary in British Columbia so I could see you every week. Why go to Quebec that's so far away? Um, and I'm going to ask you a question, mom and dad. Do you have ambitions for your kids? Is one of those ambitions for them to be ambitions? I've got a granddaughter, 17 years old. I love her. She's a, oh, she's a great kid. She's my granddaughter. Of course she's a great kid. <clears throat> she's going to Bible school next week. Am I going to lose her? You know, I hope so. I hope not. What is your priority? Are you willing to pray your children into missions? Let's pray. Father, for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and, and John Mark and the other people we'll be seeing in the book of Acts, we thank you for their example. Thank you for your leading. We pray for our churches here in Quebec and throughout the world that you will give us leaders who are like these leaders. Thank you that Rosemount has a group of leaders who are multi-ethnic, and that reflects the church that we have here. Thank you for their leadership. We know that they are men of prayer. Pray your blessing upon them.